So it's an interesting time. It's a, a time of uh, upheaval. And pandemics are very interesting things. You know, psychologically, we know that uh, they remind us of how little control we actually have over our lives. Uh, they create a unique psychological fear, we learn. You know, unlike uh, great natural disasters or um, uh, terrorist attacks, which tend to draw people close together, uh, we know that, uh, that with epidemics, um, they tend to pull us apart as we tend to retract from each other and fear sets in and people can respond in ways that aren't very pretty. People can respond in a very self-protective way. Uh, people can respond by overbuying, you know, where they stock up on whether it's toilet paper or ammunition or, and just kind of hunker down. And, and it's, it's, it's a time of disorientation. It's a time of shock. It's a time where uh, the patterns of our lives are disrupted, and we can feel very much like uh, a slight identity crisis sets in. I had one person tell me uh, this week, I feel like I've woken up to a bad B-rated uh, sci-fi Armageddon movie. Uh, I, I, what's going on? And, and so indeed, these are unprecedented times. You know, last week, Pastor Josh began a new Lenten series called Self-Denial in an Age of the Self. And, and today's passage is very, very timely. Uh, Matthew 16, 21 to 26. In it, as you heard wisdom read it, the disciples come to find out something very surprising, something ominous, something unsettling. And then there's a certain response to this, which we hear about. And then Jesus uses this time in order to teach us something. So this morning, we're going to look at this ominous news we're going to look at the response of the disciples, and then we're going to look at the teaching of Jesus that comes out of this event. Now, to appreciate this section of Scripture, we really need to back up a little bit and see what was happening immediately before this. In, in the previous section, we find that things are going pretty good for Peter and the gang. Uh, it's a time in which uh, things are going well. It says in Matthew 16, 15 to 18, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And then, and then Simon Peter, who is really quick to speak, typically, replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. You know, here's the situation. Jesus says, who are people saying that I am? And the disciples begin to kind of wade into it. They say, well, you know, people are saying maybe a prophet, but something doesn't quite sit in that answer for them. And then Peter is thinking to himself, wait a second. This is unlike anybody else. You know, the prophets say, this is the way. And Jesus is saying, I am the way. You know, the prophets say, thus saith the Lord. But Jesus says, I say to you. Peter says, wait a minute. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. And, and Jesus's declaration to Simon uh, uh, Peter is, is, is amazing. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And, you know, I, I don't know how you would have responded to Jesus looking at you and saying, blessed are you. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. Uh, but I know about me, I'm, an, I'm a three on the Enneagram. You know, I'm the kind of person that I love words of affirmation. 
I love it when people, you know, I like to, to perform. I like it when people applaud. I, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for that stuff. Um, and I'm guessing that Peter felt pretty good at this moment, this moment where Jesus praises him. But, I, but we know that Peter not only felt pretty good because of Jesus' praise, uh, G, Peter felt good because Peter was a good Jew. Peter had been raised hearing about the Messiah and that when the Messiah come, he would put to right all the wrongs in this world, that the Messiah would come and that he would, uh, you know, set the world straight. And so Peter is feeling pretty good. The disciples are feeling pretty good. But immediately on the heels of this, Jesus brings this ominous news. It says, uh, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. Now, Peter is shocked by this news. This is not what Peter was expecting. He's confused. He's anxious. This news that Jesus is giving, you know, I don't think Peter would put it in this way because there were no sci-fi movies, but for Peter, it feels like a bad sci-fi movie. He knows the script. He knows what life is supposed to look like. In fact, things are going along exactly the way he wanted. And then suddenly Jesus drops this news. And so Peter's has an immediate response. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. You know, Jesus, this isn't something, this isn't a good plan. This is to be averted. This is a disaster we need to to, to completely uh, get away from here. But Jesus' counter rebuke is unbelievable. You know, if you look at the way Jesus talks to people, in the Gospels, it's very interesting. When Jesus is talking to someone who, who is uh, marginalized on the fringe, maybe it's a tax collector or maybe it's uh, some, some uh, dubious woman who may be of ill repute or whatever it is, Jesus is always so tender. You know, he uses language like friends or daughter. But, and when Jesus is dealing with you know, some of the religious leaders, uh, you know, in their moral indignation, Jesus can be stronger. He can say, you know, you hypocrites. But nowhere in the Bible do we have Jesus giving such a strong response to somebody with such language. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Okay, you know, I don't know about you, but on the list of things you don't want to have Jesus call you, Satan is probably at the top, right? That's a pretty bad moment in your life when Jesus calls you Satan, all right? So why? why? What was this about? I mean, is Jesus just being brutally difficult here? Why? You know, if we start to think about Peter's situation, we can be sympathetic. Peter, like I said, was a good Jewish boy as a child. He was raised as a Jew. He knew the story of the Christ coming, the Messiah. He had read Psalm chapter 2, 8, which says, Today I will give you the nations as your inheritance. He'd he'd read Daniel chapter 7, which speaks of this one who is like the Son of Man, who's given authority and honor and royal power over the nations. He'd read Isaiah 9, 6 to 7, which says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And the throne of David and over his kingdom He will establish and uphold justice and righteousness from this time and forevermore. Peter knew the script. The Messiah was going to come and bring all things to right. But do you see what Jesus is doing? Jesus is picking up another prophetic strand that speaks of God's faithful servant suffering. 
In Psalm 22, we read of the servant crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Psalm 69, we read the servant saying, save me, O God, for the floodwaters are up at my neck. In Zechariah chapter 9, we read that when the Messiah comes, he's not going to come on a war horse as a conqueror, but on a humble donkey. And then in Isaiah 53, we read this about this servant. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgression and he was crushed for our iniquities. See, Peter can't put these two strands together. No one can put these two strands together. But interestingly, for you Bible scholars, you might remember that at Jesus' baptism, we see these two strands coming together. When God puts these two together and he says, this is my beloved son, Psalm 2, in whom I'm well pleased, Isaiah 53. See, from, from, a, from a human vantage point, we can't put these two together. And so Peter says to Jesus, no, this won't happen. Um, and so just as Peter's understanding of Jesus as the Christ really ultimately is sourced by God the Father, Peter's response, Jesus says, has another source. It echoes another voice, namely Satan's temptation. Do you remember in the wilderness, the third temptation that Satan brought to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, 8, and 9 was that he could have rule and reign over this world without a cross. And Jesus says to Peter, I've heard this line before. And from a human vantage point, we naturally have this kind of response. And what is it? It's the response that's native to humanity. Apart from God's help, we naturally default to Peter's view. See, Peter couldn't incorporate suffering and loss and difficulty and crisis into the kingdom of God. In the words of the reformer Martin Luther, Peter was a theologian of glory. Martin Luther writes, the theologian of glory does not know God hidden in suffering. Therefore, he prefers glory to the cross, strength to weakness, wisdom to folly. Carl Truman describes it this way. The theologian of glory assumes that there is a basic continuity between the way the world is and the way that God is. If strength is demonstrated through raw power on earth, then God's strength must be the same only extended to infinity. To such a theologian, the cross is simply foolishness, a piece of nonsense. But for a theologian of the cross, God achieves his intended purposes by doing the exact opposite of that which humans might expect. The supreme example of this is in the cross itself. God triumphs over sin and evil, not by shunning it, but by allowing it to apparently work its worst on him and then working in and through it to overthrow it. See, Peter here is giving us the essence of what it means to be an immature Christian. Peter thinks Jesus Christ suffered, so I will never have to suffer. Jesus Christ had bad things happen to him, so nothing bad will ever happen to me. Jesus Christ, you know, uh, died so that I will never have to be confronted with my own selfishness and my own self-centeredness and my fear. 
Jesus Christ died so I'd never have to lean in faith dependent on God as I give gladly and sacrificially so that it hurts. In other words, Jesus died so that I won't experience real, the real suffering and brokenness of this world. I won't need to repent in the face of my moral failings so that I won't need to live in faith in the face of difficulty. And so to confront this kind of thinking, Jesus here wants to sit to his disciples down and he wants to be clear about what it means to be his follower. And we see what he says in Matthew chapter 16, 24 to 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall man give in return for his soul? The great German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who died as a martyr under Nazism, uh, wrote a book in 1937, and it was called Nachfolge, which literally means to follow. And in it, he's wrestling with this text where Jesus says, if anyone follows me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. Now in English, this is translated the cost of discipleship, but doesn't really get across exactly what Bonhoeffer is getting to here. See, Bonhoeffer is coming to grips with Jesus saying here that we must lose our life to gain it. In fact, this expression is found in all four gospels. And if you're a student of the gospels, you know, there's a lot of material that's not repeated. But when something's repeated in all four gospels, that's a central message of Jesus. And over and over again, Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses life for my sake will find it. And so Bonhoeffer in this book, Nachfolge, wanted to summarize this. And this is how he summarized it. When Jesus Christ calls us, he bids us come and die. The kingdom of God is inaugurated through Jesus's glad self emptying and weakness and suffering for us on the cross. And the kingdom of God continues to advance as his followers walk in his footsteps. When confronted with difficulty and weakness and calamity, our call is to lean into our father in faith and to follow Christ closely in serving and loving those in need around us. On our church website, it says this, we are a gospel-centered church rooted in historic Christianity, seeking to practice the way of Jesus together. <laughs> wow, that's a little scary, right? Think about that for a second. We are seeking to practice the way of the cross, the way of Jesus together, to enter into a glad self-giving for others as we lean out in faith, drawing from the Father, drawing close to Christ and serving and loving those around us. You know, during times of epidemic, during times of plague throughout history, we see some of the most shocking and disturbing inhumanity of man to man, of human beings to one another. Like I said already, during earthquakes and natural disasters, uh, during terrorism and things like this, people pull together, they rely on each other. Uh, but during epidemics, we find that people do the opposite. And from ancient, the ancient period to the modern, there are accounts of citizens ignoring other citizens in need. 
There are accounts, crazy accounts of even parents abandoning their own children who are sick. It seems to pull out the worst in us, these epidemics. But at the same time, there is another thread running through history. There is evidence that the church has grown through times of epidemic, through health crisis. There's, there's evidence that, uh, as Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity, shows that there is a marked growth in the church during epidemics. In fact, uh, Rodney Strong makes a case that some of the marked growth of the church in the early centuries can be attributed to nothing else but the compassion and care that Christians showed during these times of upheaval. And he tracks the increase of conversion rates during three plagues, that in the second and third and sixth century. And then he draws this conclusion. Had classical society not been disrupted and demoralized by these catastrophes, Christianity might never have become so dominant a faith. We shouldn't be in shock and freaked out by this moment. We might not even be here if it hadn't been moments like this in our, in our Christian forefathers uh, and those who have come before us acting like Jesus in glad self-giving. So church, this is not a time to be in shock and surprised and freaked out. We have a long history of those who've come before us who've acted in ways that are like Jesus. How did they do this? How did these Christians respond during such difficult times? Well, number one, they recognized the severity of the situation. They didn't downplay it, but they didn't freak out. They didn't lose hope. They didn't become people of fear. And then they acted in solidarity to serve others in the crisis, producing high rates of survival. You know, Christians began serving and loving and helping those and bringing others back to health, both their own Christian brothers and sisters, but also their pagan neighbors. And then finally, Christians extended bonds of friendship to support people in need during the social upheaval. And there are many shining examples I could pull from of Christians who gave sacrificially during the epidemics that have come throughout history. But this morning, I just want to point out one in particular. Uh, you know, uh, John Calvin often gets a bad rap. And if you've taken the time to actually study the life of Calvin, I'm not sure he would make for a very good Calvinist. Uh, one of the things I love is Calvin's, uh, the golden book of the true Christian life. And um, for Calvin, the Christian life, he says, can be summarized in this. It's a life of self-denial. It's a life of glad self-giving to where it hurts, just like Jesus did. You know, and, and, and this, by the way, fits into another theme for Calvin. Calvin experienced tremendous suffering in his life. You know, he lost his mother uh, through the plague. Uh, and as a result, Calvin had a deep sensitivity towards people that were going through tremendous health issues. Calvin himself battled tremendous health issues, issues throughout his life. And when he was a pastor in Strasbourg as a refugee, a refugee fleeing because uh, of his faith, he spent his time there visiting those who were dying of the plague. His, his wife, Idolette, was actually a widow whose husband had died of the plague. Calvin married her and adopted her two sons. And then during his ministry in Geneva, Calvin uh, dealt with a city that experienced the plague five times. Five times the city was terrorized by the plague. And Calvin led the charge in visiting the sick, going into homes, which in many ways could be a death sentence, and to minister to people that were suffering. Many of Calvin's pastor friends died as a result of caring for the sick. And there was one point where the city fathers begged Calvin, please stop, you have to stop. 
Don't you realize we need you? You need to stop visiting those who are sick. You need to stop reaching out to those who are suffering. And Calvin said, it's reported, would you have my Lord come back to find me not caring for the least of these? I, I, I was thinking about this this week. I started crying when I think about the level of faith. You know, and Calvin's just one example. We do not need to be surprised, church. We come from a long lineage of Christians who have stepped into moments just like this and in faith and trusting in God have loved those around them. How did they do it? Well, I just said it in faith. You know, how did, how did Christianity come to increase the life expectancy? Well, their pagan friends, they were reading Pliny and all these Roman, uh, you know, uh, thinkers and historians, but they didn't, they didn't give them any kind of hope beyond birth to death. Christians had reasons to have hope in the face of death. Charles Spurgeon writes, the Christian need not dread sickness for he has nothing to lose, but everything to gain by death. A pastor in Wuhan writes this, Christ's peace is not to remove us from disaster and death, but rather to have peace in the midst of disaster and death because Christ has already overcome these things. They didn't fear sickness and death. Why? Because they really believed in the resurrection. They really believed that if they died, they would merely be sleeping and they would be raised in glory. And this gave them the capacity to move beyond fighting and squabbling for toilet paper and hunkering down and being so self-focused to reaching out and loving and caring for those in need. You see, they believed in the resurrection, but they also believed in the cross. They believed Jesus Christ came to their aid in their desperation, that Jesus laid, laid aside his safety. He laid aside his security. He laid aside his privilege and rights, and he entered our sin-infested world, and he loved us to the point of giving his very life. When you have a God who demonstrates his love towards us and that he would give his own life, how can you then, if you really internalize that, how can you not reach out to those around you in love and care and concern? See, in light of this kind of love, we can't just simply think of our own plight. As we enter into the cross and are moved by a God who would love us so much, we don't live in fear. No, instead, as Philippians 2, 4 to 9 says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Jesus Christ in his glad self-giving is our model during this time. But what does that mean practically? What does that mean practically for us at this time? You know, here's something I want to put, I want to give to you. Fight thinking of yourself as a consumer during this time. Fight the temptation to think of yourself as a consumer not only in terms of hoarding things and making sure that you've got everything you need, you know, of course, we want to we fight that, but I want us to think in terms of how can we give away things? How can we bless those around us? How can we be concerned for others? Maybe it means that you decide not to cancel your gym membership. 
Because, you know, there are people that are hourly workers that if the gym closes up, they're not going to have an income. Maybe it means that you continue to, even though you're not getting goods and services, you continue to support small business owners, uh, maybe, you know, that have blessed your life during this time and say, you know, I know that you're, you're unable, we're unable to meet at this time. We can't have dance class or whatever it is. But you know what? You are such a blessing in this community. I'm going to continue to pay because I believe in your business and, I, and I'm looking forward to the other side. Of course, it means to check in with our neighbors. If there's anybody you've never reached out to, this is the moment. Go knock on the door and say, hey, listen, I want to know how you're doing. Do you have everything you need? Is there anything that I could provide? How can I help you? How can I help, help you during this time? And of course, maybe you know people that are self-isolating. Maybe they're uncomfortable with, you know, you inviting them over to your house. Uh, maybe they're not. Invite them over. But maybe, you know, you just reach out and just say, hey, listen, I just want to call you. I want to find out, do you have everything you need? Can I go to the store for you? Can I, can I get anything for you? And of course, when in public spaces, give up the parking spot. You know, resist this kind of fear because we are not people of fear. We are people of the resurrection. We are people of the resurrection and fear will have no place in our lives. We have nothing to fear during this time. Before closing, I want to draw your attention to something extremely surprising that Jesus says. Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You know, this word life and soul, it's actually the same word in the Greek, psyche. It's where we get our word psychology. It's a rich word. It has multiple layers. And that's why translators felt okay translating it with two different words. But it's such a rich word that I, I want to draw attention to something I think Jesus is saying here that we oftentimes miss. You know, Eugene Peterson, in, in his, his translation, he translates this, uh, this word psyche, your true self. And I think that's fair because of the layers that is, that's in this word. And so do you realize what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying that the way that we deal with this crisis is incredibly decisive in terms of who we are. In terms of who we truly are, the people that we are. Ernest Becker, in his book, Birth and Death of Meaning, writes this. Most of our life is in large part a rationalization of our failure to find out who we really are, what our basic strength is, what thing it is that we were meant to work upon the world. Do you hear what he's saying? You know, most of the things that we do, most of our life, the, the desires, the drives, the things that move us and upset us, they, they really are fed by a low-level disorientation. We don't know who we are. We don't really know what we're here for, why we're born, what we should be doing for the world. And he, and he goes on in the book and he says, hey, if you want to understand this, you can't just simply lean into scientific psychology. This is a spiritual issue. This is part of the human condition. And there is nothing more timely than right now. This, there's, this is no more timely than it is right now. You know, we live in a, in a world where if you were asked people, you know, what is the good life? They would say, you need to follow your heart. You know, you need to reach inside and, and find out what are your desires and your preferences and what are your fondest dreams? And you need to pursue that. That's what the good life is. Really? Is that what the good life is? Jesus says something very different right here. 
He says, if you want the good life, come and die. If you want the good life, follow me and come and die. Robert Roberts writes, we've been led to believe the self is the new God. Just like in earlier times, we thought it fitting to never deny God. Now we believe it is to never deny ourselves. Do you see what Jesus is saying? You will never be able to meet the grandeur of your soul by simply following your preferences. You will never be able to find what life is about if you're simply going about seeking your fondest dreams. You say, well, wait a second. Are you saying that Jesus will give me my fondest dreams? Your fondest dreams? Don't you realize that below your desire for security is the one who said, I will never leave or forsake you? Don't you realize that, that below your dreams of endless health is really your desire for the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life? Don't you realize that below your dream of a sure future is the one who says, I go to prepare a place for you? Don't you realize that below your dreams for a rich, beautiful, full life that you can just taste is the one who said, I am the bread of life. Your fondest dreams. Jesus says, I'll give you something so much better than that. Come and die and I will give you myself. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have not only shown us what life is about, but you have demonstrated it so beautifully. And we want to walk with you during this crisis. Give us the faith and the courage to love like you loved so that we might experience the life that you have, your very self. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.